1: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? With a fuel crisis, a Labour civil war and the recent return of ABBA, we're feeling very 1970s this week. I'm Dorian Litsky. Let's meet this week's panel minnie raman has had a big week not only has she celebrated her birthday but she's just become the interim chief exec of the joint council for the welfare of immigrants hi minnie how is your reign of terror going so far
2: <laughs> hi i really hope that's not a direct quote from any staff members by the <laughs> way <laughs> um, yeah it's going very well thank you i'm only a few days in but i'm i'm learning a lot and it's very exciting uh
1: and what's the gcwi's big campaign at the moment
2: So we've just launched, I mean, we always have loads of campaigns going at the same time, but we're in the middle of our latest campaign called People Move, and it's People Move Challenge. It's actually a fundraising campaign where we're asking people to move their bodies in whatever way they feel in solidarity with migrants and to raise some funds for us. So we've got some people doing some amazing things. We had a -a dance-a-thon, we had an ultra-marathon, so some really cool things. And the reason that we're doing that is because I think a lot of people, especially at this point in time where there's so much stuff going on with the government around borders and asylum and the rhetoric is really quite horrible, we're doing this because we feel like it gives people a way to contribute and feel like they're getting resources directly to the people who support migrants and migrants themselves without necessarily having to engage in a kind of toxic narrative. So it's a kind of a fun campaign that we hope a lot of people will get into and do again next year.
1: I'm swivelling my chair I don't know I'm just doing my bit I'm, I'm no hero but I'm, I'm, I'm moving very gently here um, Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog Hi Roz
3: Hello Dorian
1: This Freshers Week looks like it's going to be a lot more fun than last year's which ended up with some students imprisoned in their halls of residence <laughs> so it was, a, it was a low bar but what precautions and backup plans are universities putting in place uh, in case uh, Delta kicks off?
3: Well, I can only really speak for the lse because that's where I work, but it is quite, still quite strict. You have to show a lateral flow test in order to get into any campus buildings, even if you've been double vaxxed. You're supposed to wear masks indoors as well, and all the Freshers' Fair stuff is mostly online. There's not really an indoor freshers' fair. There's a few kind of stalls outdoors, and lectures are all online still. Oh. And if things do get very really bad, they have reserved the right to move seminars and things like that online as well. So what the students get up to at night, of course, is their own business. But in terms of what the student, what the university is organising, it's pretty restrained. So you don't
1: have to drink online. <sighs>
3: Can you drink online? I mean, is it, how, how would you drink online with well, strangers? you it's know, don't you remember lockdown <laughs> where you sort of like a
1: yeah. sorrowful uh, Zoom? But with the gloomy strangers, Zoom.
3: with strangers, it would be ghastly, wouldn't it? I mean, I don't know.
1: <laughs> um, well, good luck, freshers. <laughs> Meanwhile, in secondary schools, 12 to 15 year olds are now eligible for vaccination. Do you think that this age group and their parents are going to be particularly susceptible to vaccine hesitancy?
3: yeah i do actually i think there'll be a bit of a disincentive to have it um lots of kids in that age group have already had covid which you know a lot of them their parents may say well there's probably no need because you've got some immunity already that's not ideal, but there's an incentive that exists to to get it in order to travel abroad potentially, but that doesn't kick in probably until next summer for most people. It's not that urgent. Then there's the fact that schools are being targeted by anti-vaxxers and some governors are even getting involved and saying that they won't, you know, they will oppose vaccination plans. My own daughter's secondary was targeted by, by a group shouting, kids, kids don't get the vax last week. And this is apparently getting more common. I think, too, that the fact that the vaccination took a while to be approved and the Joint Committee on Vaccination took a while and dithered before making up their mind about whether it was worth it, that will lead quite a lot of people to say, well, if they didn't really feel it was that urgent, then why does my kid really need to have it?
1: Our guest this week is an old favourite. He's a columnist and leader writer for The Guardian. He also presents Politics on the Couch, a podcast about the psychology of politics. Raphael Baer, welcome back to the show.
4: Thank you for having me. Raf, what can
1: psychology tell us about politics that you don't get from the the usual analysis? What are you trying to dig out on your podcast?
4: Well, the the main motive for, for doing the podcast uh, was to to really. It started with a, with sort of grappling with the question of why does no one ever seem to change their mind? You know, so so much politics seems to be about people holding positions and arguing with each other, and and you would have thought that rationally that means a strong position beats a weak one or a good argument uh, trumps a poor one. And and very obviously that just doesn't happen. And and once you realize that, and once you realize that that so much of the motivation that goes behind voting or what people find charismatic in a candidate is operating at a level that that you can't really articulate using the normal political vocabulary, you get drawn into into the world of psychology and cognitive biases and, and what's going on unconsciously. Uh, and that was just so interesting. Uh, well, I was discussing with a friend and, and we started the podcast. I don't know whether the podcast actually satisfies the answer to any of those questions, but it's been interesting to do it anyway. I've learned something.
1: Uh, have, you, have you not solved human nature yet? <laughs> How many seasons it, have yeah, you had?
4: Would, only, be, only because we haven't got time. You know, I'm sure just you know, <laughs> a few more hours and a longer edit we'd get there.
1: So when people talk about like, cause, you know the, the marketplace of ideas and sunlight is the best disinfectant, the best way to defeat a bad idea is with a good idea, you seem to be suggesting not necessarily so.
4: Well, I just think you have to understand the relationship between that part of your your mind that's looking at evidence and data and that part of it which is driven by all the sort of preceding experiences and biases and the motivated reasoning, which is the most important thing. So, you know, you've probably discussed Brexit a lot on, on this podcast. And We've mentioned it. Yeah, it's probably come up from time <laughs> to time. And the reality is on both sides of that argument, when if you had four years of people being Remainers or Leavers, they've got a huge emotional investment in a position that has then fused with their identity. And so to sort of throw little uh, sort of gravel pellets of fact at that huge edifice that they've constructed isn't necessarily going to, to change their mind. It doesn't mean people never change their minds. There There is a great image, uh, Jonathan hates one of the lead psychologist in this field uh, has the image of of a a rider and an elephant you know it's not even a horse it's an elephant that is your the kind of all the emotional drivers the 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 hidden biases that make you emotionally respond to things now there is still a driver so there is still a rational being on top of the elephant but you have to recognize that it's an elephant and then then you can start to think about how people behave and how to influence their behavior
1: Boris Johnson's been in Washington this week trying to advance the UK-US trade deal. He's also been trolling France and revealing the magic number of children that he has fathered, six. Do you find him psychologically interesting?
4: I do, actually. I find him uh, almost unhealthily, disproportionately fascinating. It's very difficult uh, when I write my column each week to not end up getting sort of drawn down the rabbit hole of doing cod remote psychoanalysis of Boris Johnson (laughs) Um, because uh, he, so much of his politics is connected to his temperament, uh, the impulsiveness, you know, I mean, so just what you've just mentioned there, the, the, the trolling of France, where he's sort of, Went to Cameron and said, "Oh, don't aim one break," and he did his his kind of comedy uh, Franquaise shtick, uh, which is a, an appalling piece of diplomacy. I mean, it's it's in relation to the 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 UK US Australia submarine deal, which sort of stitched up France. They went behind France's back. That's a problem. It has to be managed. You know, it would be fine with a bit of decent diplomacy, and it's just that sense that. the the thought came into Johnson's head and he couldn't hold back. And actually the the other thing you mentioned, the fact that no one was sure how many children he has, uh, that's also in a way another, that's a private personal feature of this unruly temperament, the lack of, basically self-control, lack of impulse control uh, and and a craving for instant gratification. That means he hasn't been able to sustain relationships or frankly, you know, keep his junk in his trousers for as long as he ought to have done uh, over the duration of his career. And it's all part of the same Boris sort of shtick, which is appalling to some people and precisely what appeals to other people because he breaks the rules and he's a bit of a lad and he does it his own way. And so I just find it's almost impossible to describe or to, to confront a political challenge facing Britain at the moment without then asking the question, well, how would Boris Johnson respond to this because he's the prime minister? And that immediately takes you into his psychology and his personality.
1: On the show this week, an energy crisis looms this winter as providers fold under the financial pressure of recent price rises and the country threatens to literally run out of gas. Plus, 18 months after his election as leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer addresses his membership in person for the first time as the party's conference kicks off in Brighton. And on the extra bit this week, train spotters rejoice as two new underground stations open in London and the German Greens propose a magical pan-European night railway network. What are the panel's dream public transport links? Remember, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you could do us a huge favour by heading to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star rating and maybe a review too if you have time Just something like, very good, great, couldn't believe how good this was, I can die happy now. Apple pushes podcasts based on the reviews and ratings. This is a great way to help Oh God, What Now? Another one is to support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to find out about early ad-free episodes, merchandise, priority live show tickets and exclusives like our new weekly spin-off Oh God What Else. First this week, the energy situation is so bad that I had to tell my 10-year-old daughter about the winter of discontent because we walked past a newspaper headline reading Crisis What Crisis with What spelt W-A-T-T. She was gripped, obviously. I was doing all the voices. What, spelled W-H-A-T, is going wrong and how bad could it get this winter? Rods, wholesale gas prices in the UK have risen by 250% since January. Uh, There are a lot of moving parts here. There's increased demand for gas post-COVID, especially from China. Russia is strangely unwilling to help out Europe by increasing exports. But why is the UK suffering particularly hard if this is a sort of worldwide situation?
3: Well, I would say it was a perfect storm, but actually one of the problems is there hasn't been enough stormy weather. There's been less wind this summer and renewables now make up quite a lot of the energy that Britain consumes. I mean, they're forty-two percent last year, but that was a very windy year. And the fact that we've moved away from coal is great. It's now, I think, only two percent of uh, of energy, but that means that we move to gas, so we're much more heavily reliant, therefore, on gas. And then there's the nuclear problem. We've got four reactors out of service at the moment. including both of Hartlepool's. Those are offline because of unplanned shutdowns, because of problems with the reactors. Dungeness shut down this summer. That was seven years earlier than it was supposed to be shutting down. We have low stockpiles of gas. And then to Capitola, there was an uh, electricity cable to France that caught fire. So we uh, we can't draw down more energy from France to help us.
1: So it's like a kind of Homer Simpson in the nuclear plant kind of situation with just things shutting down and on fire. (laughs)
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to alarm you. I mean,
4: you know.
1: Although at least that power plant is still running. Well done, Mr. Burns. Um, Insiders have said the initial talks with the government about gas shortages reminded them of the same ones held ahead of the COVID outbreak last year. Um, The authors of Failures of State called that sleepwalking into disaster. Is this another sleepwalk?
3: There were lots of early indications there were going to be problems, which were ignored. But it's not just gas shortages when it comes to energy. There's one of the big problems at the moment is the government is not giving enough detail on its net zero plans. Which, of course, it's all it's going to trumpet at COP26 in November and say how fantastically we're doing. But in a way, we're resting on past glories. We've got quite a significant amount of renewables. And now we say, well, we've done that. But what do we do next? And unsurprisingly, Boris Johnson is not giving the detail that industries and businesses need in order to plan ahead and make really important, expensive decisions. Some of them are waiting for cleaner and cheaper and better technology to emerge, which is happening all the time. But the longer you wait for that, the less you actually do to tackle the problem. And we've had fiascos like the Green Homes Grant, which was supposed to uh, insulate British homes. That was abandoned after six months because it was just such a massive screw-up. Therefore, you've got people now sitting on motorways under the Insulate Britain banner complaining about insulation. And for all that it is extremely annoying, they have a very strong point.
1: I like the combination that they have of radical methods and very sensible demands. Because so it's not extinction rebellion.
3: Yeah, they it's not know. not even Greta
1: Thunberg, you know, existential threat. It's just like, could you insulate homes? I know. Please?
3: They know exactly what they want. And they. I think they're getting a surprising amount of attention. But of course, Priti Patel has said that they will all be arrested if they carry on doing this.
1: Go to an insulated cell. <laughs> the irony. Um, so apart from developing renewables further, what else does the UK need to do? I mean... Reopen the coal mines, uh, build more nuclear power plants.
3: Nuclear is a real problem at the moment. We wanted to build six new nuclear plants... And one of those was going to be built by Hitachi, but they objected to the way the government was financing the project and pulled out. And two others, including one in Anglesey, were cancelled. And then there were three others who, which had Chinese involvement. But as you know, the government is increasingly wary of getting the Chinese involved in infrastructure and energy infrastructure in particular in mm. Britain. And so those are kind of on hold while we work out how much we distrust China then there's really we need to use less energy and to come back to insulation that means better insulation it means doing it quickly but we're not doing enough of that we also need to store gas better and we need to sort out our interconnectors because for for all that solar power and wind power are great as we saw this summer with not really enough wind you have to you have to ensure that there's a steady supply and you can't do that with solar and wind alone
1: Mini, the government deregulated the energy market in 2014, bringing in dozens of new providers, then five years later imposed a price cap to protect consumers. Many small suppliers are likely to go under with, with two, possibly three by the time since I've written this script, um, already gone. Do you think the government should be bailing them out or is this the risk uh, that they took when they, when they sort of rushed into this market?
2: I think this is really like several problems. So I think what the collapse of these smaller firms is really showing is the monopoly and control that the big six have, which put smaller players out of business because they are more vulnerable to price fluctuations. But I actually think that we really need to go beyond thinking about a bailout um, because bailouts themselves also benefit the big six without putting any commitments on them to transition to renewable or sustainable energy or provide the best deal for customers. So rather than kind of short-term, costly emergency bailouts, I think what the government should be doing is is buying out, not bailing out the companies that are failing. And I think the fact that bailouts could be an option show that there actually is money to do this. It's just a lack of kind of political will, especially as if, if you think about public ownership of energy, The estimates are that that could save £3.7 a year if you think about things like buying back the National Grid, which was sold in the 90s. It's actually a very popular proposal with the public. I think the latest polls show 52% or around that actually support public ownership of energy. And I think this is the moment in time to acknowledge that our energy market is failing consumers and the planet and that we need to think about moving away well, we need to think about not being wedded to so much the idea of privatisation that we have to bail out companies.
1: Well, I read that that, that, that some uh, senior Labour people were annoyed that Ed Miliband has recommitted the party to the renationalisation of utilities. But let me like say th- this is this is very popular. People like the idea of, um, of of the sort of state taking back these companies, particularly when the market's failing. Is this another, I mean, is this something that Labour could use to their advantage, even though, God forbid, that it's a policy that Labour also had under uh, Jeremy Corbyn.
2: I mean, I think they could use it to their advantage. I mean, I actually think the best advert for bringing things back into public ownership, whether that's like utilities, energy or like the NHS, is just the pandemic. You know, I think the pandemic really showed the need for equal access to things and for the state to prioritise well-being and health and safety over profit. And I think All of those can be best controlled when you bring things that are necessary for the public back into public ownership rather than held with private companies.
1: And the government only recently removed the the sort of the pandemic bonus of universal credit. Now prices are going to go up. And for people on very tight budgets, that makes a huge difference. Gordon Brown has called the rise vindictive and indefensible. Is this something that the government could quite easily... Extend, if not reverse, but just extend until outside, we're outside the winter?
2: I think they can. The thing is that this comes at a time when there is like a package of measures which actually target the working family, or the, they used to call them the just about managing families or whatever. You know, this comes at a time when. They're talking about cancelling the universal credit uplift. The the price cap on energy is being lifted. It also comes off the back of the national insurance rise conversation, where there has been a very public conversation about the impact on this group of people. And if you think about it logically, so if you lose about £80 a month in universal credit, which is also around about the amount that you might pay in energy per month, and your energy bill then goes up 20 or 30 quid because of a price cap increase, suddenly you're now in need of an extra 100 quid a month. Now, that is actually a lot of money for some people. And I think that shows that the government's... It's not about a lack of information. It's about a, a lack of prioritisation. What they, the Tories are showing here is that they might be verbalising that they care about Red Wall voters and needing to keep their seats in those regions, but their priorities are very firmly with, with big businesses and protecting wealth.
1: Raf, the Business and Energy Minister Kwezi Tang has said there is absolutely no question of the lights going out or people being unable to heat their homes. There will be no three-day working weeks or a throwback to the 1970s. Such thinking is alarmist, unhelpful and completely misguided. Now that's quite a low bar, not literally going back to three-day weeks. How bad could it get?
4: Uh, well, first of all, that does seem a bit of a hostage to Fortune because he doesn't necessarily know how bad uh, it's going to get. Um, my sense is that the problem won't necessarily be... One uh, one specific thing, such as all the lights going out, and that being the focus of the crisis, it will be a sense of general unraveling. So, for example, if you you know this one way or another, this is going to feed into uh, consumer price inflation because the cost of energy always always does filter through that way. So things are already getting more expensive. You just talked about the universal credit cut. Uh, the, the, The things were disappearing from the shelves anyway because of uh, other problems in the supply chain. We're going into winter. we don't know what will happen with COVID. And so there'll be a lot of pressure on the NHS. And so I think the danger isn't necessarily that, although this is a bit of a sort of a black swan event in terms of what's happened to the the gas price. uh, And I think what Quasi Quateng is is thinking about there is that very specific set of circumstances that means that that can be controlled. If you have a wider sense that nothing is working properly and everything is sort of running out of control, and also when, you know, as I was saying earlier, you have sort of Boris Johnson as the personality at the top of this, you could very easily start to look like someone who, who's sort of a bit of a headless chicken running around at the top of all of this uh, because of, he sort of gives that impression anyway. Then politically it becomes immensely damaging because the one thing that would, would really damage this government, I think in particular, is the sense that they that it's just there's so underlying competence or strategic intelligence running the thing that could slip away from them quite quickly, I think.
1: Well, I mean, this just just adds to the problems that we're seeing with food and gaps on supermarket shelves, because one consequence of gas shortages, which I had no idea about until this week, is that fertilizer factories are reducing capacity or closing down altogether for the winter. And a byproduct of fertilizer manufacture is the CO2 used to carbonate drinks, decaffeinate coffee, preserve food and stun animals for slaughter. So the technical term for this is, is a clusterfuck. Um, <laughs> how can the government avoid a, a real food crisis? For example, my, my, my daughter's school has just announced so they've been talking to their caterers. And there's like no potatoes at the moment, uh, you know, and they've got they're going to have to they've had to get very sort of creative and fluid with their um, with their menus. And that must be happening all over the country.
4: Well, one of the problems here, and I think this is, again, part of the motivation for, for quasi-quatting, trying to sort of talk this down a little bit, is you very quickly get into a vicious cycle where if people start to anticipate problems, they go out and panic buy. I mean, you saw this at the beginning of the pandemic. I don't, you know, I don't quite know why people thought um, you know, COVID would make the need to use a toilet more, but you know viscerally, toilet paper feels like the sort of thing you need, and so everyone goes out and buys it, and so there's none on the shelf. So there wasn't a toilet paper shortage. There was a supply chain problem. Now, if that's then writ across a whole range of products and people start to think those things are disappearing, then that will accelerate. Mm. Uh, and so I think, I mean, you, your question is, what do you do about it? I, I have no idea. I mean, I'm just very glad it's not my responsibility to manage all of this because I think it is. it is immensely complicated because, you know, ultimately, if what happens as a, as a minister is you get you know, the logistics companies and the businesses round the table and say, we need to sort this, you know, I'm going to knock some heads together and make it happen, you'll have two or three things will come back to you. One is either the government basically skews the market and intervenes with taxpayers' money to bring the price down so I can do the thing that I'm unable to currently do, which is possible but expensive and politically tricky, or in some cases they'll say, um, it would be really handy if we hadn't left the customs union of the EU. Uh, well, yeah, no one's going to say that in government too loud. It's not a huge factor in this, I don't think, but it is part, definitely part of the picture and a bigger factor than, than, than the government is saying, or that they'll say, well, there's, there's literally nothing we can do and you have to ride it out and you have to find people have to just buy other products. Uh, and again, that's not a political message that any minister wants to give. So, Yeah, I'm afraid I actually don't know the answer to your question. It is possible that, you know, I mean, prices go down as well as up and they will ride this out. But, you know, we're all going to learn a lot about the uses of carbon dioxide in the meantime.
1: Well, you mentioned the impression of uh, incompetence, uh, God forbid. Voters have been fairly generous over the last 18 months in assuming that a lot of problems are beyond the government's control. Um, Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Um. Is this a situation that you, th- I mean, we're always saying, is this is this going to be the one that really kind of like, you know, puts the Tories down in the polls? But does this have the making of something with real political blowback just because it's so visceral if you have less money in your pocket and you're struggling to get the food that you want?
4: Yeah, I think certainly uh, the, the benefit of the doubt that was extended to the government uh, over the pandemic was quite unique to the sense that a virus is... It's almost by definition a freak of nature, it, or, or you know, it's not a freak, but it's something extraordinary that comes from the outside. And th- th- there was for a long time that sense of of national emergency in response to an external threat, where people rallied to the flag anyway, and uh, and the government was younger, and you know, in, in terms of not having been in. in Boris Johnson not having been Prime Minister for all that long, and there was benefit of the doubt available. So this is different to that. I think this is you have to organise stuff. I mean, an interesting, if you remember, I think it was 2000, autumn 2000, there was the um, blockades on refineries because of a dispute Mm. over uh, fuel uh, transport and refining. And Things started in a classic, again, a situation where you can find a pinch point in the economy and things can start to shut down very quickly. Uh, and you know, the Blair government, then they were talking about getting the army out and they were panicking about whether the NHS was going to be able to function. And you look back on what ministers were saying and what Alastair Campbell, I think, was writing in his diaries so or Blair was writing. The, the sense of how very quickly people get enraged and you, you, people are only ever sort of a few square meals short of of rioting now i don't think it's going to get that bad but my sense is politically yes this it could be very damaging but and this is the crucial point and we'll probably come on to talk about this in a second does that necessarily mean that people go well we should have a A different government, we should have Keir Starmer in charge of this. I'm not so sure because I think uh, one of the things we've definitely seen in the pandemic also is that Starmer's particular brand of sort of tutting on the sidelines and being the sort of the dad at the football match who's kind of shouting things saying, Oh, pass, good, get back, get back, press, press. You know, it's just unhelpful. Shut up, you guy. Like they're doing their best. That seems to be now slightly attached to him as something that he does. And if he does more of that, then that becomes just more associated with who he is. And there are so many other problems with Labour and the Labour brand. I'm not sure the government doing badly automatically turns into Labour doing well. But I might be wrong about that.
1: Yeah, that unfortunately reminds me of why my mum uh, would not vote Labour in the 80s, because all they ever do is criticise the government. (laughs) Yes, yes, they're always opposing, aren't they? (laughs) Um, Roz, finally, Russia is saying that the problem can be fixed if Germany hurries up and approves the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, Does this feel too much like um, sort of protection racket tactics to be successful?
3: Yeah, it does feel like blackmail, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a good chance of success. I mean, the extent to which Russia is holding back gas supplies is very much debated. Some people say it is. Russia says it isn't, obviously. And that, you know, there just isn't a lot at the moment. But... I'm wondering, actually, because in particular when it comes to Germany, because Germany is a key force behind approving Nord Stream 2. And of course, Angela Merkel is due to leave office very soon. She's historically been quite indulgent of Russia, much too indulgent for some people's tastes. Putin may want to get a decision before she leaves and someone potentially more hostile to Russia takes over. So that may be in play. And Russia depends so heavily on gas exports that it is just its big, big method of leverage, basically, over the West.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Next this week, the Labour Party is off to Brighton, Britain's swinging seaside town, for its <laughs> first IRL conference since 2019. Already, it seems a lively time is guaranteed for all. Um, Raph, you wrote in a recent column that Starmer cannot afford to come out of this autumn's party conference as limply as he goes into it. What do you think he should be prioritising for his big post-Covid comeback? Presumably not just tutting louder.
4: Uh, No, certainly not just tutting louder. I think he has two major tasks to, to achieve here. One is people outside the Labour Party and who aren't obsessed with politics get a sense of what he is about. And by that, I mean uh, a theme that people will, will just automatically associate with, you know, if you have, if you were to have Keir Starmer as your prime minister, what would the priority be? What would the country be talking about? You know, so famously, I mean, it's awful when people always compare Labour leaders to Tony Blair, but unfortunately the the, the, the available pool of Labour success stories is so small that you end up going back to the new Labour one, even though it's flawed in many, many ways. So the education, education, education was a great example of that. You just say, this is, you, know, you don't have much background in politics to be about lots of things. In 2019, Boris Johnson he was about Brexit. It was very clear, and it works quite well. Yeah, David Cameron did quite a good job in opposition saying, I'm going to be about the environment. I mean, he wasn't in government, but it didn't matter. It, 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 it told a story. So that is the one thing. He has to be about something so people that people can say very clearly. And the other thing, I think he has to establish a character for himself. I don't mean that there's some sort of artificial theatrical thing. I mean, Boris Johnson, the Boris thing, is a bit of a character. It's also an extension of who he is, and as I was saying earlier, I think the danger is that Stalmer's character, that the sort of the, the person that he, the, the sort of the, the image people have in in their head of this type of person he is, it was originally someone you know, interesting, clever, loyally uh, who you could trust. I think it slipped my reading of it largely anecdotally, it has to be said, is into someone, as I said, just a bit sort of whingy from the sidelines. So the teacher looking over your shoulder, sort of tutting about your homework, it's not that's not something you can warm to. So uh, and and that leads you really to the last question is, does he achieve those things by having a confrontation with his own party? Uh, An opinion is obviously very strongly divided on this uh, in the Labour Party. My instinct is he doesn't have much choice. I think he probably does because people have really stopped listening to Labour. Uh, They've stopped listening in terms of, you know, to what Labour says they think the government should be doing. And actually, pretty much the only canvas he's got now is to to sort of paint a picture of who he is, is the party that he inherited from Jeremy Corbyn and to define himself as different from that in some way. Uh, uh, Whether to what extent he feels he wants to do that, we'll find out. We get a sense a bit, maybe not enough.
1: Well yeah because the party is due to introduce new rules for leadership selection scrapping one member one vote requiring half of labor MPs to trigger a leadership challenge there's also talk of change of making it harder to deselect MPs um, and giving them more say in policy Stephen Bush and the new statesman call this a PLP power grab obviously the labor left has not taken this well why do this now is it is it an attempt to, to sort of clause for showdown
4: I think, uh, not entirely. I think it's, it would be a bit crass or, or to just sort of say, well, they, you know, in the nineties, you did clause four and new Labour leaders need a clause four moment. So here's ours. Although I wouldn't put, you know, being utterly that obvious and crass past the current opposition leader's office because they don't, they don't seem terribly good at politics, to be honest. But I think actually this is, it's more political hygiene. Uh, I, I think it's actually something you want to get sorted before you then you know, launch yourself on the country. Ultimately, the the question you have to ask is, if you're going to have a fight with the party, which he is to an extent on this, do you want it to be about something where people will say, "What, what what's that all about? Don't understand? Why is the left complaining? Probably the only thing they sort of see in their peripheral vision is that Keir Starmer's having an argument with the left and maybe he wins. That's not necessarily a bad outcome for Keir Starmer. If they don't know the detail, but they know that the Corbynites are angry, that's probably, for a lot of voters, not a bad outcome. That PLP bit of it is terribly important, though, because ultimately, I think one of the sort of cultural messages that that Keir Starmer wants to drive through to his party is the the activists and the members are really not that representative uh, in the way they look at the state of Britain and the way they look at the world of the wider electorate. Uh, And actually the MPs are probably better plugged in because of their constituencies than the members. And so, as I say, it feels to me a a bit more just like kind of political hygiene trying to get the structures right, so that you are then in a stronger position to launch sort of Starmer the brand and Starmer's Labour as a different proposition.
1: Minnie, Raf's just explained why this could be useful messaging and and political hygiene for Starmer. We know that voters don't care how the Labour leader is chosen and actively dislike it when Labour appears to be consumed by internal (laughs) rancour. What do you make of this? Does it seem like something worth doing or a kind of uh, heated distraction?
2: Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, to me, it seems like a profoundly strange and unstrategic decision. Every other party has a one member, one vote system. So I don't necessarily see why Labour needs to put itself out there and be different at this point in time. But it's clearly motivated by wanting to um, separate himself from the Corbyn era. So obviously his team are briefing that he wants to strengthen the trade union links and give members more power. But it honestly reads to me as another attempt to distance himself from Corbyn, but... I think one of the best ways for Labour to distance themselves from Corbyn is to stop talking about Corbyn so much and so publicly and to start to, to move forward and look forward in a way that doesn't seem like they're fighting the same battle again and again over the last few years without thinking of new voters.
1: Well, if, I mean, if that's the sort of the leadership's problem, then the left's problem is that they're not in power anymore. Now, we're going to see fringe events in Brighton um, from the World Transformed and Tribune. World Transformed, you know, is is quite a good kind of powerhouse for, for new ideas. What do you think the left can do in its current uh, weakened state?
2: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the left is blameless in this whole situation. And I, I think there is culpability on both sides and both sides need to do things. I mean, I bang my head against the wall so often thinking, what can the left do and how can they how can they do it better? I think in some ways they the left also has the same problem that Keir Starmer has, which is that the left needs to decide collectively what its top priorities are and how they're going to work with the current situation to mm. push for those policies in a way that prioritises a few things and not everything at at the same time and identify some things where the Tories are strategically weak and the public is not necessarily or where the public is movable from where they currently are what I would really love I think my my top priority just for Labour for the left is just to give at least the public impression that there are resolutions and solutions coming out of it instead of that kind of tension and angst and anxiety and yeah as you say as raf said earlier just constant criticism
1: i mean you mentioned about about sort of focusing priorities i found this really interesting a climate crisis motion by the group labor for a green new deal was initially ruled out of order Um, for covering too many areas, including free broadband and a national care service. And then on appeal, it was approved. And it does raise the question of how expansive should a green New Deal be? Should it take in all of these other things, the argument being that kind of, well, everything, you know, it touches on all areas of, of national life, or should it be focused quite tightly on things to do with the climate crisis?
2: Yeah, I mean, a Green New Deal is fascinating because you can take it in so many different directions. I think what it comes down to for me is it's not necessarily about how expansive it should be, it's how expansive we want it to be because it can cover so many different things. So you have to go kind of back to the principles of a Green New Deal... At its heart, it's about a fair transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables, but it's also about protecting jobs and workers that are undervalued and rewiring our economy through that process. So it's about supporting workers in high-carbon industries to transition to lower-carbon roles and about investment in jobs so that they can have better training and upskilling in order to move away from the jobs that they're currently in, and also to prioritise jobs that are low carbon, protect nature and protect people who are providing services that are, are valuable to the public, which puts the emphasis on kind of people and not big corporations and profits. So people like carers and cleaners and teachers. If a Green New Deal were to be 100% successful, it would do all of those things and create a society that's resilient to a climate crisis. But at best, which I think is where we currently are, I think it should look to make our society as safe for as many people as possible. And that's where things like free broadband and na- the National Care Service come in, because free broadband would actually support lower carbon jobs. It, is, it allows people to more people to work from home and it also protects those on lower incomes. And the National Care Service recognises and puts the value in society on people providing care rather than focusing profit. So I think actually those two things are quite a fair compromise mm. for where we could actually be and what we could actually be asking for under a Green New Deal. But I think the problem is that it, that connection takes some explanation and that's not something that people easily chime with.
1: Raz, let's not forget the plucky Lib Dems. Their <laughs> conference concluded in London on Monday, uh, but happened mostly online. I'm still feeling flush with his triumph in Chesham and Amersham, Ed Davey gave a pretty fiery speech by his standards, explicitly inviting comparisons to Paddy Ashdown in 1992. <laughs> Uh, The next five years went rather well for him. What did you make of uh, Davy's Paddy Act?
3: I thought it was abject. I I cannot understand these comparisons at all. (laughs) Well, no, but he
1: he made them. (laughs) He was explicitly going, Remember that guy? I'm like him.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, but I don't think anybody else did. I mean, (laughs) there was no storytelling whatsoever. In, in this in this speech. It was a kind of ragbag of impressionistic stuff, of shout outs to local constituency associations. There was one point when he started wanging on about making his own peanut butter. It was, it was not an impressive thing. And the thing is, when you don't have storytelling, when you can't lead people through in that way, and when you're just flinging out policies and thoughts like that, you need one big slogan as Raf was saying earlier that grabs people's attention that they can remember and for this for Ed Davey this was fair deal which he kept repeating now deal is has a great history on the left and it harks back to Roosevelt and 1930s and you know fantastic heritage but it does not stick in the mind. Fair deal does not tell me anything about how the Lib Dems will be different from anyone else. It sounds and, like
1: something, it's like a sort of price reduction sticker on
3: <laughs> Yeah, a, uh, yeah. fair deal, yeah. And if you're going to attack slogans like levelling up for being vacuous, which they are, and meaningless, then you have to come up with something better yourself. And fair deal does not do it. I mean, it was a very difficult situation he found himself in where he was, you know, semi not even, not a proper, proper conference, a few people in the room and then it was broadcast online and it got very, very little attention in the media. But frankly, that was just as well, because I think anyone who did switch on hoping to be impressed by the Lib Dems um, would have been disappointed. Well,
1: there were uh, policies beyond making your own peanut butter. Um <laughs> On climate change, on land tax, uh, on help for care, unpaid carers, uh, 15 billion pound catch-up fund for pupils. Did any of these, I mean, obviously, as we've said many times about Labour, you know, if you don't have a story, then these policies just kind of like drift away in the wind. But were any of them, did any of them strike you as as good on their own merits?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've been talking about a land tax since 2018 in the Lib Dems and it's Mm. a good idea. Uh, they want to replace business t- rates basically with a land tax, which would save businesses money. But it's not immediately clear in the concept of a land tax why it's fairer, and you need to get that across more clearly, which they haven't been doing. They've also had a, got a big idea of school vouchers, which is quite strange for the Lib Dems. I was a little bit surprised by this. It's two hundred pounds for each pupil, and more if your uh, if your child, son or daughter has special needs. And the idea is that you use you use that two hundred pounds to to go and buy the catch-up that you want, whether that's you know, violin lessons for you know your privileged child or whether that's handing it over to the school that, to give them more. But £200 is not going to go very far. And at this point, I feel, think a lot of parents are very conscious that their children have fallen behind and they really just want the funding for schools to enable them to catch up. And this feels like an unnecessary invitation to have to choose between different providers, which may or may not be very good and still not funding necessarily schools properly. So I don't think it's a winner of a policy.
1: And he says he wants to remove the Tories. Good. (laughs) Um, But he's very sceptical of an electoral pact or, or coalition with Labour. Do these words mean anything from a Lib Dem leader? Is this just what they have to say so as not to scare off the bluer Lib Dem voters who, of course, you know, help give them that victory in Chesham and Amersham? Is it just is it just impossible for him to come out unless Naomi had a gun to his head (laughs) and say, yes, all in, packed with Labour?
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, what I think they will hope to do informally under the radar, as it were, is come up with informal agreements with Labour and Green candidates in places like Chesham and Amersham, which is more a little bit of what happened there, where the others don't campaign very hard so that the Lib Dems can win and, you know, vice versa. Uh, in, in constituencies where the Lib Dems don't have a chance. But this is not an inspiring message for your followers. And this was a party conference speech. So you're not going to want to talk about that. Nevertheless, it, as Naomi would say, it is a missed opportunity. And the reason why it's particularly a missed opportunity now is because Keir Starmer does not inspire the same fear in some Liberal Democrat supporters that Corbyn did. Mm. And Johnson, on the other hand, does inspire disgust among many of them. So they are more likely to vote tactically in that way. And If you look at what the Greens are doing as well, they've been much more open to propping up a a Labour administration. In Scotland, they're already in a power sharing deal with the SNP. They're very happy to wade in and just get involved and grab the power where they can get it. Given the way the Lib Dems are polling at the moment, they really should do that too because it's the only chance they've got. But of course, we don't want to talk about coalitions because we know what happened in 2010
1: mm. and
3: then what happened in 2015.
1: Raf, any thoughts on the Lib Dem situation in general or uh, Ed Davies' stemwinder in particular? <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I think and I think that point that Ros made just now is extremely important about the voters who basically didn't vote Lib Dem because although they, didn't necess- they might have been Remainers and they might not, not necessarily have liked Boris Johnson, the uppermost in their mind was the thought that they really didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. And that really, you know, places like sort of Winchester and Romsey and Eastbourne, you know, seat and Lewis, seats that the Lib Dems really need to win, those are the voters they need. And actually, in that sense, Ed Davies' fortunes are almost entirely pegged to the credibility and seriousness of, of Keir Starmer. And Keir Starmer's fortunes are actually in, in many ways, because of what, as Ross said, sort of related to how much of an accommodation tacitly you can have uh, with the Lib Dems. The one thing I would add to that is that the danger of making any kind of deal or pact explicit is it does allow Boris Johnson quite a good line of attack, which is basically the, it's sort of People's Vote 2.0. These are all the people, they're, they're ganging up, they're gaming the system to deny you the great public a fair election of fair choice you can it, there, there's a there 's a sort of a populist narrative you can get where you know, there's a sort of coalition of chaos and all these greens and they'd probably do a deal with the s n p if they had to. You, you can you can tell that story quite pungently, uh, maybe dishonestly, but quite effectively if you're Boris Johnson. And I think that would be a dangerous position for for certainly for Keir Starmer to be in, to be sort of constantly having to defend himself against the charge that what he's actually trying to do is hide from the electorate by doing shabby deals behind the yeah, A little bang
1: there when you mentioned people's vote. <laughs> Back in those days of hope. Finally, you said in your column that there is a limit to what Labour can achieve without serious Tory divisions to help them. So just just to wrap up, what would Starmer consider a successful conference? Would he, would he go home from Brighton happy?
4: Essentially, if what people are talking about is something that he said and they're not laughing at it, <laughs> as opposed to the story being Labour Division Civil War, yeah. that's a win for him. It doesn't necessarily matter, you know, if people, if the jury's still out, but if it's a sort of, it's a, it's something extraneous to the internal dynamics of the Labour Party uh, and connected directly to an agenda chosen by the leader of Labour Party, that's a big win for him. That's step one. If he doesn't get that, then he's failed.
1: Now it's time for overrated, underrated, where each week we separate the gas from the wind in the world of politics. This week, it's our guest, Raphael Bear's Choice. Uh, What do you have for us?
4: Okay, so where do you want me to start? Overrated or underrated?
1: Whichever you like. Build a narrative, tell a story, unlike Ed (laughs) Davey. Okay, well, let's start with
4: overrated because it's connected to what we're just saying. I just, the the whole. Uh, stop not me if you've had this one before, but the whole cultural apparatus around the leader's speech at party conferences, mm. uh, I just think you know, it's a Westminster fixation. We get terribly excited about it. It's always the most important speech they're ever going to give. Uh, the lobby or, always obviously wants a line out of it in advance. I've played that game before as a political editor, De- you know, just pestering blooming. This might be a complaint about the media rather than politics, but anyway. So, the there 's a complaint about you. To get, to get some insight. Basically, this sort of some Maoist self criticism by me, by getting having previously been too excited about speeches. And they they so rarely make a big difference. I mean, you know, especially if you, if you, you want know, the lady's not for turning. There are some moments, you know, from history where you can say that was an important speech, and you know, the, the, the the sort of as it, whether the real nerds can can pluck out their favourites. But by and large, it's it's just not a big deal. No one cares. No one's watching it live, apart from the people who are also live tweeting it. It's it's really. That, I'm not sure. If you took it away, how much would actually be different?
1: What is underrated? What's better than a leader's speech?
4: <laughs> okay, so the thing that's really underrated, or who is really underrated in my opinion, this is properly nerdy. Now, I apologise. Is the clerks of the House of Commons? <laughs> right, no one's heard of the clerks of the House of Commons. Right, the, the, the Commons is a very weird institution because it's not. They're not. It's not actually. It's a. a, a it's not a civil service institution. It's not part of Whitehall. It is. It, it, it is Parliament, it is its entirely own sort of corporate entity within the constitutional order of, of the United Kingdom. Uh, and the clerks are employed by Parliament, and they absolutely keep the wheels of of the legislature working uh, and all these MPs who run around sort of willy-waving in the chamber and, and sort of pontificating and performing could not do any of what they do if they weren't people who actually understand how the legislative process works. You basically tell them how to write the laws that they're trying to write or tell them that they've accidentally written a law that's never going to work uh, and, and fixed stuff and all the procedures that no one understands. You know, they are Uh, they are such a sort of invisible but important sort of they're the wd-40 in the machine of the british constitution that if it wasn't there you'd really notice it quite quickly uh and they they by sort of convention they never say anything they never do anything public they get bullied by mps all the time Uh, and so i just want to do a little shout out to the clerks because i think they're actually really important
1: politics hipster there it's just like well uh, anybody uh, leader speech bit obvious how about the clerks the deep cuts
4: yeah, they're, they're the cold pressed coffee of the, <laughs> of the, of the political uh, fandom. Can
3: I disagree with Raf a bit about uh, party conference speeches? Because I have. Uh, they, back in the day, I did go and see quite a few. And. It is remarkable. It's very different. Maybe we forget when we're just so much on Zoom now. Actually, being in the room and being moved by the party leader for party members, for MPs, it's incredibly important. It's not quite, you know, go back to your constituencies and compare, you know, prepare for government. It's easy to take, to take the piss and say, but it is something that it is expected to inspire the activists to go back and, you know, take the fight to the country, whether it's just before an election or not. And having been you know within four or five meters of Tony Blair during you know one of his speeches for example when they do get it and they can actually hold the audience in the palm of their hand it's not something you often see in modern life and it is really compelling but it doesn't come across of course at all in clips and on tv
4: I'd I'd, I'd concede that. I think that's true. Although I would say it's sort of a sugar rush in that way, isn't it? So in the moment, I agree, when you witness it, it's quite interesting. And you learn an awful lot just by watching the crowd, seeing who's there, seeing what they react to, seeing what they applaud, what they don't applaud, what they applaud reluctantly. That's very true. And so, journalistically, there is a lot to be learned from them. Uh, And yet, 48 hours later... Nearly always, kind of forgotten this that the people come down off the off the sugar rush and actually the the waters close over the top of it to mix my metaphors and, and that's <laughs> that. But I, I, will, I will I will concede that point. I to Ross do
1: like there, seeing the the obvious crowd pleasing lines because it's like you know in a sort of speech at a wedding, you know if you're sort of struggling or whatever and you just go and what a beautiful couple. And everyone goes <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of kind of easy buttons to push.
4: It's also very interesting when you see lines that people are supposed to clap but don't. Mm. That's one of Uh. my favourite moments. It's a good one of those, (laughs) Boris Johnson's first conference speech where he was obviously trying to be a bit diplomatic and he sort of said, you know, we're, you know, we're obviously doing Brexit, but we're not, we're not anti-European. We don't like the Europeans. We love Europe. And it was meant to... You know, obviously, people went, meant to say, yes, of course, we love Europe. We just want to do Brexit. But they didn't. They really didn't love Europe at all. They weren't going to clap that one. Uh, and, and he had to move on quite quickly.
1: Minnie, have you been within spitting distance of a party leader delivering a speech?
2: I have, because I used to work for Caroline Lucas when she was the party leader and her speeches were, of course amazing and very inspiring. I mean, I'm kind of somewhere between Raph and Roz. I don't massively like it when they're super performative and fake and you can kind of see what they're trying to achieve with it, but it doesn't feel very real. I also think it's fucking great when they go really badly, like the Theresa May choking speech, you know, the 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 cringe of it, but the kind of excitement of how terrible it was going was was quite fun for me. Um I actually did massively want to agree with Raf on his underrated because the, the clerks in the House of Commons are absolutely incredible. I mean, they are often quite fuddy duddy, quite posh, very serious. Um, people who you don't see at all but the input that they have in Parliament the advice and the assistance that they give to not only um, assistants and MPs but also sometimes to campaigners who are trying to insert something into the law or the legislation is so vital and Parliament just would not work without them so I hugely agree with that and perhaps I'm also a massive nerd
1: <laughs> I think so, I think it's a safe space for the nerds <laughs> Now it's time to spin the cyber tombola and pluck a listener question from but your emails this week. Guy Brasher asks, accepting most of the current lot are worse than useless, but that under our current electoral system, this is what the UK voted for. <laughs> like a heavy sigh in this email. <laughs> Who do the panel think should be prime minister and have the top cabinet jobs from the current crop of Conservative MPs that might actually make the country a bit better? Minnie, this is a real email. It's not another <laughs> trap to make you shower a Tory with faint praise. Um, is there anyone on the on the kind of back benches, which, of course, have been quite diminished um, over Brexit, um, who you think deserves a bit of a shot?
2: I mean, honestly, Dorian, I think you made this up. Because <laughs> I didn't hate a real person. Um, I mean, do you know that I've gotten to the point now where I have to Google which Tories are nice before I come on this show in case you ask me this question. What I was thinking about, I was like, okay, I'll approach this sensibly. I looked at the Tories who had rebelled on scrapping universal credit uplift because I think if you're going to start anywhere you have to start there and Mm. start with the people who might actually understand the financial circumstances of their constituents and be willing to kind of put themselves out there. So there were four people on that list who were Peter Aldous, Neil Hudson, John Stevenson and William Wragge. I don't really know very much about them. I have no idea what their other opinions are. Um, so make of that what you will. That's as far as I'm willing
3: to go.
1: <laughs> I think, yeah, no, it's not a large pool. Um, Rioters.
3: I struggle with this one. I mean, there's just there's just so, so little talent. I mean, the people who joined in 2019 as well have not really had the chance to prove themselves. We haven't really seen mm. them in action. So it was very difficult. I mean, I, if you pushed it, I mean, Greg Hands is not too bad. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I struggled. I really struggled.
1: I mean, I kind of like, I suppose he's not an MP, but, but, but Houchen, the mayor.
3: Yeah. He seems
1: like he's got hmm. some kind of... But this is all it's all relative, isn't it? But yeah, it, but well, seems...
3: no, no, you need to look into the financing of that tease airport, but anyway.
1: <laughs> the thing is, as soon as I start thinking, well, they're not very good, then just a picture of, like, Nadine Doris's face or Dominic Raab <laughs> pops into my head, and I'll go, oh, well, no,
3: no. Yeah. Um, I mean, Andy Street's not too bad, but
4: again, not an MP. Um,
1: Rav, you, you have a mental Rolodex of everybody in the House of Commons
4: not so much these days like i have, need to catch up with the 2019 intake a bit because i haven't been in parliament obviously because of the pandemic but uh, tom tugendat is is kind of uh gave a good account of himself as as chair uh, of the the foreign affairs committee uh it seems thoughtful uh, i mean that he that uh, you know greg hans has been mentioned that it's that the, the sort of the the residue of the slightly kind of patrician liberal old school moderate used to be kind of pro european Tory. uh, There are a few of them around still. uh, They're pretty quiet, um, but that's where you'd sort of go shopping. Um, But a lot of them, you know, left. So, yeah, I mean, something like Alistair Burt would have been interesting, but not an MP anymore. Those, as you say, that's the brand uh, that has been discontinued. And that's, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure there are some of them on the benches, but I, I couldn't, whether that is being replaced, whether there's a, a sort of a new generation, 2.0 of that, I'm not sure.
1: Well, in the Romaniacs days, we would just, just go Roy Stewart.
4: <laughs> Dominic Green. Dominic Green.
1: they just became like the, uh, the sort of poster boys for the kind of not appalling Tory. Uh, but you've got to dig a little deeper, you've got to dig in the crates now. And that's the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you, Minnie. Thanks, everyone, and our guest Raphael Bear.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Stay tuned for our extra bit for patrons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song. Demon is a monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers.
2: Hello and big thanks for supporting the podcast to Duncan Power, Jim Carpenter, Richard Pipe, Maya Jensen, Thomas Parker, Penny Holtzman and Steve Bettles.
3: Thanks from me and hello to Joe Cross, Jonathan Wren, Zanya Kwebena, David Reynolds, Joe M, Stephen Day and Michael Douglas.
1: And finally, thanks for me to Matthew Ames, John Tomlinson, Dan Stinton, Fabian, Michael Carhill, Shona West and Richard Summers. See you next time.
3: Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Ross Taylor and Minnie Rahman. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Andrew Harrison is fine. You must reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It is our final, most essential command. Art Direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.
1: This week, on the extra bit for Patreon backers, the country's travel journalists and rail enthusiasts flock like moss to a flame to southwest London on Monday morning for the opening of two new underground stations, Nine Elms and Battersea Power Station station. Meanwhile, the German Green Party has proposed a pan-European night railway network which would crisscross the continent from Helsinki to Malaga and thus reduce the number of short-haul flights and create more opportunities for exciting murder mysteries. <laughs> um, Minnie, why is it difficult for European rail networks to work together when the benefits seem obvious?
2: I think my understanding of the problem is that transport networks are very very complex and because the legislation is implemented differently across member states it creates an an inability to have a seamless service and I think there's also historically been a an issue about the, the vision for the network and, and the needs of the network which I think has maybe changed somewhat given the fact that there is more clarity generally about what needs to be done in terms of decarbonisation or, or at least there's more thinking about it and I think if the priority was kind of... Of user experience, um, so thinking about kind of dependability of service, resilience, service quality, and that kind of thing alongside decarbonisation and greener strategies, the network would kind of become more effective and, and more cohesive.
1: And that was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us keep going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.